seven verses um, of Psalm 102 uh, this evening uh, before we sit down and just go, go through this entire psalm together. But I'm going to read verses 1 to 11 out of the New King James Version. Just follow along, please, as I read. <clears throat> psalm 102, a prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of trouble. Incline your ear to me in the day that I call. Answer me speedily. For my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned like a hearth. My heart is stricken and withered like grass so that I forget to eat my bread. Because of the sound of my groaning, my bones cling to my skin. I am like a pelican of the wilderness. I am like an owl of the desert. I lie awake and am like a sparrow alone on the housetop. My enemies reproach me all day long. Those who deride me swear an oath against me. For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping because of your indignation and your wrath. For you have lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a shadow that lengthens and I wither away like grass. Father, we pray that you'll speak to our hearts as we look at this passage and the rest of this psalm. Lord, I pray that as the, the psalmist writes of, of his suffering and his affliction, Lord, that we would have hearts that, while we relate to that, will go on through the rest of the psalm with the writer, acknowledging you, acknowledging your, acknowledge, acknowledging your presence, and acknowledging the reality of your work, your deliverance in our lives. And so, Lord, what begins out with with sorrow, it finishes with joy and the victory of your work. God, have your way in our hearts. Pour your spirit out. Might he teach us, might he lead us into your truth. And Lord, use your word tonight to continue your work in forming us into the image of Jesus, your son and our Lord and Savior. Amen. You guys may be seated. As we begin this 102nd Psalm, you'll note with me that the inscription doesn't have a name in it. It just, just, just simply says, a prayer of the afflicted when he's overwhelmed and pours out his complaint before the Lord. O overwhelmed with, with life, overwhelmed with the difficulties and afflictions of life. And he pours out his complaint. Now, when we see this word complaint in this context, it's not like the psalmist is pouring out uh, to the Lord and complaining to him or making any accusation against him or, or just complaining about his life. He's just stating to the Lord in his prayer what's going on, how he feels, and the things that are uh, taking place in his life. 
So in that form, a, a, a complaint. He's just lodging before the Lord those things that are happening and why it is he is so filled with sorrow with all of these afflictions that are taking place. But as we see, again, there's no name. So we have no way of knowing who it could have been other than trying to, through the context of what is written in this psalm, somehow come up with a suggestion or so. And it can only be a suggestion. That's the best we can do. You know, perhaps it was so-and-so. And it has been suggested that it may have been Daniel writing this toward the end of the Babylonian captivity of the Jews in Babylon. Um, verse 13 gives a clue in that. And, and let's go ahead and read that verse right now. Uh, the writer says, You will arise, speaking and praying, of course, to the Lord. You will arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time has come. Now, the only way that a person can know that the set time has come is if, is if somehow the Lord had actually revealed that. Because we can feel like, okay, Lord, it's time for you to work now. It's time for you to deliver me. I can't do this much longer, Lord. You know, I mean, we can do that, right? And we can feel like it's time. But has the Lord actually spoken to our hearts that it is time, you know? We, we, we can't really know that um, uh, unless he makes it, makes it uh, clear to us that he is speaking. The reason Daniel is suggested is because Daniel, of course, uh, was a prophet during the time of uh, the Babylonian captivity, as we know. We read the book of Daniel. We see several events in the first uh, six chapters related to all that. <coughs> Excuse me. But we see in the ninth chapter of Daniel. In fact, I'm going ahead of my notes a little bit right now. Um, so let's see. Da, 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 da. Chapter 9, verse 2, I think it is. And I can't even find it. Where are you? That's what I get. That's what I get for not staying with my notes. Um, I'll just I'll just put it this way. I'll 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 get to it later. But in that ninth chapter of Daniel, we see Daniel stating that that he knows that the time is near for uh, the Jews to be freed from Babylon because he read from the uh, book of Jeremiah that the captivity was going to be 70 years. And it was getting close to that 70-year period, so he knew it was at hand. So because he knew that, and because, you know, these words, I mean, this, uh, the, the affliction that is described could fit what the Jewish people were going through in Babylon, it seems like, well, it could have been then. And I, I, I think that's accurate that it could have been. But let's face it, you know, the, the Jews went through so many different kinds of afflictions, so much oppression from different nations over the history that we read in the Old Testament that it could have been any Jewish person during one of those times. So we can't nail it down. I like the suggestion. It could work, but we can't. I mean, there's no way we can be anywhere near dogmatic about that because, as I said, 
you know, it could it could have been during any one of a number of times of oppression upon the Jewish people. <coughs> Excuse me. So we have to be careful about stating when and who it was that actually wrote this particular psalm, other than the fact that we know it was written by someone who was being afflicted, someone who was in pain, someone who was in hurting, who was hurting, and someone, as we, we are going to see beginning in verse 12, maybe I should have read through verse, verse 17 instead of stopping at verse 11 when we began because it's kind of a bummer to stop with this and I wither away like grass, you know, to stop there. But we're going to go on. We're going to go on and get to the, the following verses which acknowledge the reality of who the Lord is. One of the things that is a part of this is not only is the psalmist writing about his own condition and the sorrow and the pain over the affliction that he is experiencing, but he acknowledges that others are experiencing it as well. And it seems as if this would be written by, by a Jewish person who is, is a real patriot, loves uh, Israel, loves Jerusalem, and is sorrowing over the attacks and the opposition against his nation and against himself as a person as well. And so we, we see all that together. Now, as I say those words, something that captures my heart, my thoughts, is the way that we as Christians today in our country can, can feel. Because certainly, you know, it's not like Christians are being uh, attacked physically, although that does happen, but it's not something that's happening on a, a regular basis basis to the point that we see that kind, uh, the, the level of persecution that, let's say, the early church was going through in the first century, right? Nothing like that. But we as patriots are, are watching the decline of our country as a result of our culture, the culture in our country, turning its back on God. And so we see decline taking place, don't we? And that decline does affect us as individuals. It, it affects the, the way that we function within our culture. You know, we have to be careful about the things that we say. You know, there are certain things that are scriptural that we have to be care careful about saying or else somebody might come against us. Um, I, I've, I've not seen that anyone in our country has actually been, any pastor has actually been arrested for hate speech from the pulpit, but I know it's happened in Canada. It's happened in other nations around us, and it is coming here. It is coming. But those are the things that we see, and, and I myself, as a patriot, I, I love my country. I love the USA. I do. Even as, you know, as far as we have spiraled downward, I believe still we're the greatest nation on the face of this planet. And I believe that the Lord can turn us around if, if he chooses to do so. I mean, he can do anything, right? You know, it's kind of like a, 
you know, you have to think a little hard to make a statement like that. But, I mean, it's true. I mean, we pray for revival. God could bring revival. You know, I, I think of the similarities in the sense of where we see our country now and where we were back in the 60s. You know, I mean, it just, a similar thing in, in the sense of the social unrest and, and things of that nature where we were then. And, and God brought revival then. Perhaps we'll re- he'll bring revival now. But perhaps he won't. We don't know. But the point is, God can. But if he doesn't, this country's down the tubes. We as the church are going to be fine. You know, uh, the, the, the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church, we know. But the gates of Hades can very well prevail against the United States of America. I mean, we can go down. Like any other world power over the history of the world. Uh, I don't know why we would think that we're different, especially since we as a culture have turned our back on the Lord. You know what I mean? So I think just speaking in realistic terms like that is, 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 is okay. But I relate to this in that we are in a place where we're not that far away from, fr- from even physically suffering because of who we are as believers in Jesus Christ. And we will individually and as a group suffer. So it, it, it can play into that to some degree. First couple of verses, we see, we see these wor- words. We see the psalmist crying out to the Lord. In familiar ways, I mean, these, these are words that we've seen in a number of psalms already. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me in the day that I call. Answer me speedily. And so these cries that we've read before in the Psalms in a number of them. Um, in Psalm 40, 13, we see a similar uh, uh, request for a, a quick answer uh, That verse says, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Now, we see four different ways here in these two verses that the writer cries out to the Lord, asks the Lord to hear. Hear my prayer is one. Secondly, let my cry come to you. Thirdly, do not hide your face from me. And fourthly, incline your ear to me. Four different ways that he's asking God to hear. Now, we know as students of Scripture that one of the uh, uh, qualities of our God, one of the characteristics of our God is that he hears our prayers. He hears the prayers of his people. That's a part of what our faith is. we, We pray because we believe he hears us, right? If we're just simply praying because that's what we're supposed to do, uh, that's not really a prayer. It's just re- re- reciting something that we've learned. But crying out from our heart because we know that our God who cares for us and sees us and watches us, who in fact tells us that before we even pray, he knows what we need. And there are passages that tell even before you cry out, Isaiah says, before you cry it out, I've already begun to move. You know, So it's... Those are the things about our God. But we know that he's going to hear 
And yet we can cry out like this as this as the writer does. But he asked for a speedy answer. Answer me speedily, he says there at the end of verse 2. As I read out of Psalm 40:13, make haste to help me. God answer now. You need to answer now. I mean we have any of you I've done this. Have you ever told the Lord what he needs to do? I mean, when we put it that way, it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But we do do, we'll, we'll do that. This is what you need to do, Lord, because like as if I know something that he doesn't, right? But we get to that place, you know, it's like sometimes we'll pray in a way that really doesn't go, go along with the theology that we believe, <laughs> you know? That's our emotions. But, you know, it is very similar to so many psalms. You know, our prayers could be a psalm. You know, we could put it in the Bible. And not that, um, let's be careful about that. Put it alongside a psalm in the Bible. And it could seem very similar in the sense of making the complaint, crying out to God, this is going on, this is why I hurt. hurt. God, do something. Do it quickly. Do it now. But I know you're going to answer I know that you're good. I know that you're going to get me through. The, yeah, I mean, that whole thing. You know, that is basically what this psalm is. You can go home now. No, we're going we're gonna to go through this. But, uh, but in essence, that, that's what we see. Again, as if we know some things that the Lord doesn't know. It's like praying, Lord, I want to become more like you. Lord, give me patience now. Right now, Lord, give me patience. You know? And then he says, okay. And then some kind of trouble takes place right away. Lord, give me patience. That's what I'm doing. You know, I mean, that's the way he works in our lives, right? But uh, th those are the things that, that we do. And, and while we can desire a quick answer from the Lord, you know, again, we'll pray that way, then step back and say something like, but Lord, I know in your wisdom and in the exact right time, you will do what you need to do. You will do the right thing. And so we, we, we've got to honor the reality of the, the wisdom and the timing of God, his, his timing. In verses 3 to 7 here, we see um, five verses that basically describe the physical effects of the, the grief of the writer. Let's read them again. Follow along as I read. For my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned like a hearth. My heart is stricken and withered like grass so that I forget to eat my bread. Because of the sound of my groaning, my bones cling to my skin. I'm like a pelican of the wilderness. I'm like an owl of the desert. I lie awake and I'm like a sparrow alone on the rooftop. Now, as we look at these first couple of verses, he talks about his days being consumed like smoke, bones burned like a hearth, 
heart-stricken and withered. Um, you know, th- these are all terms, the smoke, burned, and withered. These are all terms that refer to the results of fire or at least high heat, you know, the, 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 the burning and the t- being consumed and so forth, uh, withering like grass. Grass withers in the heat. You know, that, that's why, you know, you, you don't see any life out in the desert, you know, because what may have sprung up in the spring is withered right away. And we'll see that in our lawns in the summertime here. If you don't water your grass, it withers away. You know, I mean, that's just a natural, natural thing, of course. But he's talking about his, his, his inner being. It's like his, his days are consumed. So the, the time is consumed like smoke. The way that smoke is consumed, you know, if whenever there's a fire and there's smoke arising, and depending on how large the fire is, you know, if it's a small fire, like a barbecue type of a fire, if there's smoke arising from that, it's going to disappear very quickly, you know, and, and, you know, uh, a fire that's burning while smoke might continue to arise, it rises up, and then you see the end of it, it just kind of dissipates into the atmosphere, right? So those are his days. They're just kind of dissipating. They're just vanishing before me is the idea here. His bones burned like a hearth. Um, You put an iron on on a fire, uh, and and it's so hot to to the touch. That's what his bones are are feeling. He's just burning inside. So it's like his inner being is just on fire, burning up, being consumed, being stricken, his heart stricken, also uh, by, by fire, withered like grass, um, all having to do with something burning. Um, King David wrote in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, When I kept silent, my bones grew old. Through my groaning all the day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. This 32nd Psalm was written by David uh, after he gained a heart of repentance over his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite as God had sent Nathan to speak to him about that. His eyes were opened. He understood. I've sinned against the Lord. He wrote this Psalm. Uh, it's a psalm of repentance. But this is how we felt during that approximate one year between the time of the sin and Nathan coming to him. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's how we can feel if we're not close to the Lord. And obviously, if we have sin and God is speaking to our hearts about that, we're aware of the sin and we're not responding to that, in repentance, then these verses in Psalm 32 describe what goes on with inside us. You know, your hand was heavy upon me day and night. The, the, the life, my life, my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Now here in Psalm 102, there's no indication really that sin has taken place. Unless we look at verse 13 again, we saw it earlier, we do see the word mercy. 
The idea of God's mercy certainly speaks about us not receiving the penalty that's due to us because of sin or delivering us quickly from the consequences of sin. But it also can just simply speak of the reality of God having his hand upon us because he is merciful. His mercy endures forever. So I don't think that mercy in and of itself is a mean, is a, that we can uh, uh, interpret that to mean that this psalmist has actually sinned. I think when reading the entire psalm, it just seems like he's in a place like a lot of other people of Israel, that they are suffering at the hands of another nation that's come against them. That, that's kind of the feel of this. So we do have to be careful about that. And yet, what David describes, that what was going on internally for him, is very similar to what we see the psalmist here writing in terms of what's going on internally for him as well. Verse 4 ends with, So that I forget to eat my bread. Now, um, one, one of the writers that I read responding to this uh, um, wrote that the idea of forgetting really could be translated better as refusing to eat bread. Now, refusing to eat bread, is it because of fasting? But that doesn't seem to, it doesn't seem to match what we have here. Because he's speaking about his suffering, how he feels internally to the point that he doesn't feel like eating. Probably he's lost his appetite. You know, and th these are all, really they're, they're symptoms, classic symptoms of someone who is depressed. You know, j just the way it's described, not eating. Uh, um, the following verse 5 because of the sound of my groaning, my bones cling to my skin. You know, not, not eating and losing weight and getting so, 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 so thin that, that the, 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 the bones are just, you know, very much showing against the skin, you know. Um, we've seen pic pictures like that. People have lost a tremendous uh, amount of weight and they just look like, look like skeletons wrapped in skin. Right, that, that's the idea be behind that uh, that description, right there. I'm like a pelican of the wilderness, like an owl of the desert. I lie awake and I'm like a sparrow alone on the housetop. Charles Spurgeon wrote: The psalmist likens himself to two birds, speaking of the pelican and the owl which were commonly used as emblems of gloom and wretchedness. Gloom and wretchedness. Now, the, the Hebrew word that's translated as pelican is not speaking about the same kind of a bird that we see here down at the beach, beaches of Southern California that are, that are flying, you know, uh, along the coast. You know, you always see them grouped together. There might be seven, eight, nine of them, always in a V, you know, Going, going across. So it's very cool to see that. But that's not the kind of bird that this is because this bird that's being described is one which is more like the owl, which would be by itself most of the time. I mean, I don't know. It's not, not that often that I've ever actually seen an owl in the wilderness. 
A number of years ago, I mean, gosh, it was a long time ago, um, 10, 12 years ago, uh, we used to have a regular visitation of a white owl that came in the trees out here. If, I don't know if any of you were with us at the time. We would go out on a, on a Wednesday night, and we would see the, uh, this, hear the owl, the owl hooting. Here's a owl hooting. No, here's an owl hooting out there, you know, and you look up and see this white thing up there, and it's like, oh, cool. This is white. You know, but nobody was with them or her. I, mean, I don't know what it was other than an owl. But, you know, they're, they're always alone, you know. I mean, they don't need a party. They have a hoot just by themselves. I mean, uh, I'm sorry. But yeah, alone. But again, as Spurgeon pointed out, emblems of gloom and wretchedness. And in terms of the sparrow, one Dr. Thompson said this, that he's often heard a sparrow which had lost its mate uttering by the hour its sad lament seated upon a housetop. So this idea of lamenting and gloominess and acknowledging your your own wretched condition, these are things that we see here along with these birds being used uh, um, allegorically here by the writer. Verse 8, my enemies reproach me all day long. Like in these four verses, 8 to 11, we see that he speaks about uh, some uh, some detail about the uh, opposition from, from enemies and then also with God himself. But verse 8, My enemies reproach me all day long. Those who deri- deride me swear an oath against me. For I've eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of your indignation and your wrath, for you have lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a shadow that lengthens and I wither away like grass. My enemies reproach me. One writer named Horn wrote wrote this, The scoffs and reproaches of men are generally added to the chastisements of God, or rather, perhaps are a part, and sometimes the bitterest part of them. We do see that he speaks about God's wrath here in the 10th verse. Uh, God's indignation and God's wrath. So that in combination with uh, the reproach that comes from the enemies. Now, this could very well be describing a nation that has come against Israel, whether it's Babylon or, the, or whomever it may have been beforehand, uh, um, the, the uh, uh, um, Palestinians or whatever it may have been, Palestine, we don't know. But the point is, God is pouring out his wrath against the nations through these other nations. We know that God uses others, and in the case of his chastisement of nations, as he did with Israel, I mean, plenty of times we see this in, re- in relation to Egypt. We see this in relation to Babylon, that God uses these nations to come to do his work of chastisement against his people for their own unfaithfulness to him. That's how we see 
that working. So often in our own lives, people that we would be calling enemies and things that they're doing to us, could it be that God is using them to do his work in our lives? The chastisement? I think we have to ask ourselves that question and, and be honest and, and asking the Lord, Lord, Lord show me. Uh, as David wrote in Psalm 139, see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You know, search my heart, O God. I need you to show me if this is a result of a sin of mine. I don't see it, but I also know that I can be blind to it. Show me, right? It's not necessarily the case because we just live in a broken world. There is just simply a lot of evil and wickedness that takes place. But we do know in terms of Babylon coming against uh, uh, Israel, I should say Ju uh, Judah, uh, the, the, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdoms had been invaded by Assyria about 100 years prior to that. But um, th that it was God using man in his own wickedness to do what he would normally do according to his own ways against his own people, against God's own people, in order to bring chastisement to them. So God does do that. And he'll do that individually for us as well. And so the reproach of the enemy, along with God's indignation and wrath, can work hand in hand certainly can work hand in hand. But at the same time, we can experience affliction due to no wrongdoing of our own simply because we live in a world that brings it. We live in a broken world. And in this broken world, there are things like illness, sickness, disease, and death. As you guys know, I've just experienced this. A number of you here already have experienced that in terms of losing a spouse or losing another loved one because of some sickness that was not brought on by them. Now, sometimes there's a, you know, I mean, if someone smokes cigarettes, you know, two packs of cigarettes for 60 years and winds up with cancer of the lungs, well, okay. That's a little different thing. But it's all a part of the brokenness of this world. So sometimes not because of our own sin, our own wrongdoing. But here in verse 8, we see the writer writing, the enemies reproach me all day long, those who deride me swear an oath against me. Uh, particular enemies who swore an oath against that person that there was going to be some kind of harm, maybe even death. You're just swearing, I'm going to, I'm going to kill this person. You're going to die. You know that kind of a thing. Maybe that's that, that's what he's talking about. But in his mourning and in his grief, we see verse nine. I've eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. And so, uh, um, but I, I think it does fit along with the idea of uh, of somebody who is mourning for his country and his nation 
uh, another nation has oppressed them, ha- has, has uh, attacked them, invaded, or whatever the case might be. Many Israelites are, are, are dying, and he's in sackcloth and ashes mourning. It's been this way for a long time. Uh, and, and, and the description of himself in verses 3 to 7 fits, but also the idea of the mourning. And so, you know, uh, a person who mourns, a, a Jewish person who mourns in this day would put on sackcloth and ashes, and he would sit and mourn and wail. And so the idea of, of, of ashes and weeping would, would, would speak to that, the, the tears of, of grief and mourning being mixed with the drink as well as the ashes um, being eaten. But there's also some, some symbolism here with the idea of ashes being eaten uh, be because of the destructive nature of it, what ashes represent. It's internal as well as outward. In verse 10 and 11, uh, because of your indignation and your wrath, for you have lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a shadow that lengthens and I wither away like grass. Um, this sense of being alone and the sense of being rejected by God. Uh, David Guzik wrote this, overwhelmed with a sense of divine rejection, he felt that his life was short and had little meaning. Uh, feeling like you're being rejected by God can be that. And we can certainly feel like we're alone. But we also know that God said he'll never leave us nor forsake us. But it's interesting, isn't it? That when Jesus was on the cross, Matthew 27, 46 says, And about the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lava sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And had his father forsaken him? Technically, no. But there was this period of time while he was on the cross that he had to separate himself from him, turn his eyes away from him because he could not look upon him because he bore the sin of the world. So he was alone at that time. When I say technically, I mean in the end, no. But there for a period of time, he was alone on that cross bearing our sins the father could not look upon him. There are times that, it fe- that we can feel like God's not looking upon us either. You know, but um, none of us are ever going to have to bear the burden that Jesus did. So I think when he tells me as his child that he'll never leave me nor forsake me, I believe that that's real and he never will. He will always be with me. You guys believe that? And yet believing that, do sometimes is it true that sometimes you feel like he's not with you? I mean, it can feel that way at times. Especially if we're praying and the Lord's not answering our prayer. And the thing that we're praying for is because of some situation that is so painful. I mean, something like what's what, what this uh, a brother is 
is uh, praying over. It doesn't feel like he has left us. I think sometimes that we can feel like he's not hearing us or that he's not with us simply because he's not answering our prayers. And, and, and really, I think God always answers our prayers, but he doesn't bring us results right away necessarily because sometimes his answer is wait, not yet, not time, not my time, not the right time. And because we're impatient and we want the time now, we feel like he's not even hearing. Now he hears. He's just not answering the way we want him to answer. Maybe that's why we feel like he's not with us. You know? I mean, th- those are things that we have to consider as we pray unto him. Now moving forward, verses 12 to 17. For you, O Lord, shall endure forever. Now we see a change. The psalmist has been looking at himself, looking at his enemies, looking at his pain, looking at the situation he was in and that others were in around him. Now his eyes are going upward. Now he's looking up. And he sees the Lord. But you, O Lord, he begins to speak to him in this prayer in this way. You, O Lord, shall endure forever. And the remembrance of your name to all generations. You will arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time has come. For your servants take pleasure in her stones and show favor to her dust. That would be the stones and the dust of Zion. So the nation shall fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. For the Lord shall build up Zion. He shall appear in his glory. He shall regard the prayer of the destitute and shall not despise their prayer. The very thing that he was just feeling like, like he was being ignored, like he was being rejected, now in verse 17 He shall regard the prayer of the destitute and shall not despise their prayer. You see, that's the difference between being consumed with ourselves and our problems or looking into the Lord in the midst of that problem. And that's the difference. Are we going to see him and the deliverance and the victory that he will bring through this? Because he will. He will somehow, some way, at some point in time, bring victory, bring deliverance, bring wholeness. He will do that. Are we going to look to him or just look to our own issues? You know, if we're just looking horizontally around us, it will bring us to a place of depression if we never look up. But when we look vertically, it changes everything. It changes everything. Absolutely everything. And so we see the hope of our deliverance. But you, O Yahweh, O Lord, you shall endure forever. So he's writing of what he knows to be the nature of God, the eternal nature of God. You will endure 
forever. And it's important to, to see that. Even though our own hearts wither like grass, even though our lives may wither like grass, the Lord endures forever. The word of the Lord endures forever. Your mercy endures forever. God and everything that he is and represents endures forever. We just for a short time. So a part of what we see here is the, the great contrast that exists between God's nature and ours. He will endure forever. And you will arise, he says, and have mercy on Zion. We, we, we've spoken of this already, but we see the, the, the confidence because he endures forever, because his people re remember his name forever, he will arise and in rising, he will have mercy on Zion. For us today, we would say, you will have mercy on us, your people. You'll have mercy on your church, on your children. On me personally, we can say that. God has mercy on us every day. We just don't see it all the time. We don't see it. In a very real sense, every day that we live, we have, every time we, have, we, we take a breath, God is showing his mercy on us because we don't deserve to be taking every breath. And so our, our, our lives are grounded in the mercy of God. Your servants take pleasure in her stones and show favor to her dust. The, 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 the stones of Zion, the dust of Zion, and just the idea that that with the, uh, uh, whatever's going on there uh, in Israel, probably in Jerusalem, perhaps at the temple, the, the, or whatever city it might be, the, the city walls being broken down, the stones in a heap. But that would speak especially in reference to Jerusalem, you know. But, you know, every Israelite loved that wall around the city, what it represented. And the stones being broken down, we read in Nehemiah in the first few verses of that of, of that book. Nehemiah has, here's here's words of what's going on in in Jerusalem and how it's been attacked and and how the the, the wall has been torn down, the gates are are are, are ruined, and and he just grieved in his heart and his mind, and he wept and and he prayed to his God, and that was the beginning of him going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. He was a patriot. He loved Jerusalem. And so that's what this verse is referring to. And so the nations, because of these truths, the reality of God's nature of etern being eternal, his mercy that he's going to show his people, uh, the reality of his people, his servants, loving Jerusalem. So the nation shall fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. For the Lord shall build up Zion. He shall appear in his glory. He shall regard the prayer of the destitute and shall not despise their prayer. 
you know, reading these words and just referring to Nehemiah makes me wonder. I wonder if Nehemiah could have written this. No, the other verses do not apply to him because he's not in the kind of suffering and affliction because he was not there in Jerusalem at the time. But we see the reality of, of God's involvement and the confidence that God, or that, that uh, this writer had in the, in the Lord. And in regard to this confidence, um, if it was indeed Daniel or somebody in that time that wrote this, I found Daniel 9-2. <laughs> Here it is. I don't know why I couldn't see it earlier. Um, let me read it for you, Daniel 9-2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. So that verse, Daniel writing that at this time, is one reason to think, well, maybe Daniel did write this. But he personally was not going through the kind of suffering that others were going through either. Could, it be, could he have written to represent them? Perhaps. But because of past deliverances, verses 15 to 17, the way that God had already worked on behalf of his people, the eternal nature of God, the prayers of his people, that will give great reason for nations surrounding Israel, even the nation that now was oppressing them, to fear the Lord. And that, that's basically what he's writing of, that uh, um, the nations will fear, the kings will also fear, because God is going to answer, he's going to rebuild, he's going to restore. Verses 18 to 21, this will be written for the generation to come, that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. That's us, guys, isn't it? When we look at the things that he's done, and whatever situation this was in the history of Israel that was going on, in which this writer was going through this, God brought deliverance. He always does. He always does. And so it gives reason for us to rejoice. God is going to restore. And we see the, the psalmist confident that God is going to show up in his glory. God is going to be God and is going to do what God always does. He always brings blessing to his people. Not without having some affliction and hardship in the meantime. But we've got a great ending of our story, don't we? You guys think about that often? We've got a great ending to our story, guys. God always shows up. And it, it makes me think of uh, what we read in Psalm 46.10, a very popular verse. Be still and know that I am God. 
I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. But might we just simply step back when these things are going on and know that God is God. And let's let him do what he does. Let's do what we do best. Worship him, follow him, submit to him. Maybe I shouldn't say best. Maybe we're not really really good at that quite yet. (laughs) But when we do, that's when we're at our best, that's for sure, when we submit ourselves to him. This will be written for the generation to come that a people yet be created for praise uh, that may praise the Lord. For you look down from the height of the sanctuary, from heaven the Lord viewed the earth. In verse 19 now, uh, to verse 20, to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to release those appointed to death. To release those appointed to death. That's a powerful statement right there. To, re- to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his people and his praise in Jerusalem. When the peoples are gathered together in the kingdom to serve the Lord. Now, there's some reference there to the messianic kingdom in the end. But we see here that his people, God's people, look back on what was written and were blessed by it. In fact, Romans 15:4 says, For whatever things were written before, were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. I have hope today because of what I read in the scriptures. How about you guys? Because of what the Bible says. I've got hope. And this idea of of verse 20 to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to release those appointed to death. The first part of Ephesians 2 came to mind. Let me read the first five verses then. Ephesians 2, 1 to 5. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which, now this describes all of us, guys, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, oh, I love that. Don't you love that? That's who we were. That's where we were. We were children of wrath, just like the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with him, excuse me, together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And we can go on and read more. I didn't want to take the time to do that. You're familiar with the rest of that passage. But again, this idea of but God, that's what we see there in verse 20. To hear the groaning of the prisoner, to release those appointed to death, but God. But God. I love it. Verse 23, he weakened my strength in the way, 
you shortened my days. I said, oh, my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. Of old, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. The children of your servants will continue, and your descendants will be established before you. That's an idea of the end of our story. In fact, isn't it true? There is no end to our story. Because we're going to be with the Lord forever. And even as he is eternal in existence, we have received from him everlasting life. The gift of everlasting life. Life that will never end. So, no, we don't have an end to the story, but we know where we're going to be at the end of the story because, well, there is no end. If there were an end, we know what's after now. And the beginning of that time with him, is that the end? Well, that's just the beginning. <laughs> you know, so it's like, oh, we have so much to look forward to. You know, and, and so we see the, the, the psalmist writing uh, uh, in, in that nature. You know, even the things that God had created, all the, all the heavens being the work of his hand, it, it, it's all going to, to perish. It's going to go old like a, like a garment. It's going to be burnt. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth where we will be forever with him. That's basically where the end of this psalm is going. Oh, what a great way to end. When it began with my days are consumed like smoke, with my bones burned like a heart, my heart stricken and withered like grass. You know, and that can be a temporary sense because of what we are experiencing in a world that is broken by sin. But we've got eternity with God. Let's keep our eyes on things above and not below, as Paul writes to the Colossians, as the Holy Spirit speaks to us. Because, guys, we've got a lot to look forward to. We've got hope. And that hope strengthens us to keep going, strengthens us to endure, strengthens us to continue as we walk with the Lord, wanting to represent him well in a world that needs him so desperately. And Father, help us to do so. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness, your kindness. Lord, the, the greatness of your love, the fact that you endure forever, that your mercy endures forever, your word endures through all generations. God, thank you. God, we have so much to look forward to. And sometimes we get wrapped up in what's going on around us and, and we can lose sight of the blessing of being yours. God, thank you. Every way of our hearts, man, we pray. Lord, as we leave from this place, as we close with the worship song, leave from this place, Lord, might we look to you and might, might we not be brought down by this world, but lifted up by your truth with our sights on heaven, 
based on your love, on your deliverance, on your forgiveness, on eternity with you, and with those who have gone before us. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Have your way in our hearts now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand together, guys. Frank and Leela, thank you for being here to lead us in worship tonight. It's always a blessing to us. Um, if you guys haven't noticed, they're always with us on the first Wednesday of every month. I mean, if you've noticed a pattern, well, that's the pattern. <laughs> if you notice a pattern, it's because there is one, yeah. But uh, thanks, guys, for being here with us. God bless you guys. Worship along with them. We'll see you next time we're together. <laughs>